Didn't want her to think the door was slammed in her face. disappointed quite a bit in our elections on Tuesday but mostly over proposal three and just just as we prayed and preached last week uh, from second chronicles that it is time for the Lord to act and he acted not in the way we wanted him to but he acted and sent us a message and it uh, the the verses that we had looked at we're in Second Chronicles, but even the weeks before that, we had looked at Luke 18, and, and at the end of verse 6, it talks about that it, towards the end of time that he sees is, is that there is not enough faith. So, and, and what we're going to look at is, is in chapter 12 of Acts today is fervent prayer. And, and so I, I, I talked with God, and I said, God, did, were our prayers not fervent enough, or did we lack faith, or was it a little bit of both? But we know that nothing takes God by surprise. And we know that God has a plan and a purpose because he is the one that sets up and takes down the rulers. He, he is in control of that. And he will work out his perfect plan in our lives through the people that were elected. And unfortunately, through the proposals that were allowed to be passed, that gives supposedly, and, and we know it's not a God-given right, but gives people the right to murder babies, and, and, and it's, it's worse than it was under Roe versus Wade, because now they've made it part of our Constitution, and we know that there's a lot more insidious sin going on than just the abortion, which is bad enough in and of itself. God is the author of life, and that's another way that Satan can thumb his nose at God is by taking life. And so he, he, he is at work here, too. He is a, a bad actor in, in this age that we live in. Hopefully you, and, and you write, wrote down that you'll have to, to read this week is the scripture that, that Dick read is Psalm 34. The first 18 verses talks a lot about prayer and talks about how, how we need to come to God, but how he also wraps his arm around us and has us and takes care of us. So it's a, it's a really, I like it. It's a good psalm. I mean, most of the psalms are pretty good, but there are some that, that for me just stand out and above the others, and that's, that's one of those. So read and meditate on that this week. And when, when you seek God's face, sometimes it's good to pray his word. Pray Psalm 34. And that, that, he, that you would find, find him and that he would find you coming, coming into his presence. Father, as we look into your word today, we ask for, for your leading. We ask that our spiritual eyes and hearts would be opened. And Father, that we would continue to be about your business Although somewhat discouraging uh, was the passage of Proposal 3, 
Um, Father, we know that, that you have a plan and a purpose, and, and it may be that we have opportunity to stand firm in the face of adversity in the days to come. We pray for your strength and your wisdom. Guide us now through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Two weeks ago, we were looking at Matthew, cha- or Matthew Acts chapter 11, and um, it was in Antioch. Go ahead and put that up if you would, Stephen, Matt. Okay, I did that map last time. I'll come over here. Antioch, Jerusalem's down here. Antioch's 300 miles north. You have to remember that Tarsus is where Saul was from. So it was a stone's throw. Well, a little more than a stone's throw, but a little bit shorter than the trip from Jerusalem to Antioch for Barnabas to go and get Saul and, and bring him back to Antioch to help in the work there for over a year. But the Antioch is where Christians were first called Christians, where Christ followers were identified with Christ being in Christ. And as we've looked at, we're going to hit chapter 12. We're not going to make it all the way through today. Um, But as we hit chapter 12, we're coming to the, essentially the end of the first part of the book. The first part of the book that had Jerusalem and Judea and the area around Samaria there as, as the focal point of the church, and it was basically to Jews, and we've been dealing mostly with Peter. And as we get into chapters 13 through 28, the rest of the book, it's going to shift in, in scope and in, in emphasis that at the, the center now, the, the center of the ministry is going to be basically Antioch. Paul, we're going to slide from, from Peter to Saul, And we'll see when he transitions to Paul, because right now he's still Saul. But we'll see where he transitions coming up in chapter 13, and he'll start becoming Paul. And his ministry, uh, missionary journeys and ministry trips into Asia, and then over to Greece, and and even to Rome eventually. But the the emphasis in the second half of the book is primarily uh, taking the gospel to the Gentiles. In verse 21 of chapter 11, uh, if you recall, the fellows had come up from Cyprus and Cyrene, and were te- they were Greeks. Uh, they were teaching the, the Grecian Jews in Antioch. In verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And that's just one of the things that we've emphasized in the first part of the book, when Peter and John were, were, uh, were healing the lame man in, in the, the the miracles that were being done, and we've gone back and reflected back on Nehemiah several times, that it was the hand of the Lord that did it, and it was done in the name of Jesus. It wasn't these guys doing it in their own power? And we see here that these guys weren't even apostles, but that the hand of the Lord was on them because they were preaching Jesus Christ to the, to the Jews and the Gentiles, specifically the Gentiles in Antioch. And that was their ministry and their mission. And then uh, the last section, 27 to 30 of chapter 11, we have the, the um, Agabus, okay, prophesying that there was going to be a famine in, in Jerusalem and Judea and Judah area. And the really cool part here is that the teaching that, that was being done, that Peter had done in Antioch, the teacher, the teaching that these two fellows, or the group of guys, doesn't say how many, I don't believe, uh, from Cyprus and Cyrene, had told the believers, and what they had taught them was that it taught them to be concerned for the other believers in Jerusalem, whom they'd never even met. 
And, and the really fun part about it was there was no price tag on it because the famine hadn't even happened yet. Okay? But well, how did they know what to send? If, if they didn't need $100,000 for a, a cargo ship full of grain, how, how did they know how much to send? Verse 29, And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to descend a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. There's no price tag. It wasn't like, well, we don't want to give too much because if we give too much, then they'll waste it. Or, or you know, if we give too much, then we could have used it over here instead of down there. No, they just trusted the Lord to, to move in their hearts and they gave what they were able. I just think that's a really cool concept and one that I hope we understand and, and make a part of our lives is that we give what we are able there's the Old Testament tithe, but the New Testament standard's even higher than that because it's not just a requirement, it's an offering. It's above and beyond the, the minimum required. And most importantly, God says that he loves a cheerful giver. And these, there, there's nothing here that indicates that these guys were begrudging in, in what they gave. It was just that they had determined, as they were able, to, to send money to help the brothers down in Jerusalem. So just kind of a cool concept there. And as we get into chapter 12 of Acts. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. No, no mistake in what he's about, what his goals or purposes are. Verse 2, and he had James the brother of John put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, and when, they had seized, when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. Now, this Herod is, is not the Herod from Bethlehem that killed the babies, okay? That Herod was his grandfather. Um, let's see. So I don't get this wrong. Herod the Great was the one who, who had all the little boys in, Jerusalem, in, in um, Bethlehem and around that area killed when, when Jesus Christ was born shortly thereafter. His, his son, um, Herod Aristobulus, was this guy in chapter 12, was this Herod's dad. And, and we don't have anything recorded, and there probably is in the works of Josephus, but we don't have anything recorded in the scriptures that, that tells us that he did anything dastardly deeds uh, and wrong, but his brother did. So we have this Herod's uncle here. He's the one that had John the Baptist beheaded. So they, they're, they're, you know, they say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Yeah. <clears throat> Even when it's a nasty tree. These guys are just keeping it in the family business, I guess. They're, they're not, a, not, a, not a crew to be uh, emulated or admired or imitated. Because now we got this dude here, Herod Agrippa I. Now, i got to tell you something about this, this, this family. And I'll see if it rings any bells from last Sunday. And I didn't know at the time when I was preaching out of Second Chronicles last Sunday that this was going to fit in here. But God is good and it fits. 
This dude, Herod, and this family lineage is from the family line of the Edomites. Ring any bells from last week? Second Chronicles. There was a group of people going to attack Judah, and they were the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites. We know that Ammonites and Moabites were from the incestuous relationship of Lot and his daughters. And then we know that the Edomites were from Esau. And remember Jacob and Esau and how Jacob got the birthright? And to this day, those three tribes, even though they're technically descendants of, of, the, of the Jewish line, are at odds and, and always cause strife. And Nehemiah, the Ammonites and the Moabites were the ones always causing the grief while they were trying to rebuild the wall. And here we have Herod, who's an Edomite, who's, who's of that lineage. And so the Jews really hate Herod. They, they, don't, they don't like, there's no love lost. They don't like him. And so they don't like the fact that he's ruling over them. But at the same time, being a, a, in the family line of the Jews, although many, many uh, generations back, he understands their traditions. He understands their, the way they carry out the Passover. Um, and, and so he, he, wants, he knows how much they hate him, but he's just like anybody else. He wants everybody to like him. Even though they're, they're basically, essentially, sworn enemies, he, he, he's ruling over them, and he, and he wants to be liked. Who doesn't like to be liked, right? I like, my, I like my neighbor to like me a little bit, you know, as long as they're not egging my house and whatever. I, I like to be liked. So he says, I know, I know what's going on here. Herod says, I know what's going on. He said, there's this group of Jews called the apostles that the rest of the Jews don't like because they want to do, if we, if we think back here, when Jesus came, he fulfilled the law and he fulfilled the temple, okay? Herod, Herod's aware of these traditions and, and he knows that these apostles aren't well liked by the rest of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those that, that think they're cool stuff. Okay, he knows that they don't like him, but he if he can make them happy, then that's a bigger group than the apostles. So he'll have more people kind of liking him over here. Okay, so he takes James and and we have Peter, James and John were the three that that seemed to be kind of the inner circle with Christ. They were the three that were at the transfiguration. They were the three apostles that were present when Jesus raised Jairus's daughter from the dead. Okay, so, so they were kind of the inner, inner group there. And so Herod wants to make an impact with the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and Sadducees. So he takes James and kills him. Oh, they love that. Yeah, they were cheering. They were clapping for that. That was one less apostle preaching the gospel. That was one less apostle that is going to preach Christ that, that might make them lose their authority if the temple is no longer it, okay? And the law is no longer it. If they can get rid of some of these apostles, they'll have less opposition. 
and they'll be able to keep proceeding on with their, their law and temple bit. Recall in Mark 10, 38 and 39, towards the end of Christ's ministry on earth, and, and Peter and James and John wanted to know who's going to get to sit at the right hand of God and, and the other at the left, and, and who, who's going to get that position. And if you want to write down the reference, we won't turn there, but Mark 10, 38 and 39. Who's going to get to be great in the kingdom of God? Okay? Christ said, you want this position? Are you able to... Drink this cup that I'm about to drink? And they weren't sure what he was talking about. But we know that they're going to find out in life, and and James found out here. He was beheaded for Christ. Herod saw it was great. Yay! The Sanhedrin and the religious rulers were all happy for that. And he said, okay, I want a few points today. I got a few more friends, Herod says. So I'm I'm going to pull this this uh, Peter guy, and throw him in jail. But he was smart enough to know the traditions again. He knew the Jewish history that they wouldn't, they, they, they wouldn't crucify or, or have anyone killed during the, the Feast of uh, Passover, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the, in the Passover week. So he puts him in jail and he waits. Now what's special about this guy? Peter, Peter's already walked out of prison once with John, right? Just walked out. So instead of one soldier handcuffed to him, he puts one on either side, and then he puts extra sets of guards at each place on the way out. He said, we're not letting this guy get away again. He, he walked out before. He's not doing that to us again. Kind of like fool me once, bad on me, fool me twice, bad on you, whatever. You, you know the phrase, what I'm saying. I said it backwards, I know. You, you get the idea. Okay, so he saw that it pleased the Jews, so he put Peter in prison. Verse 5. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. Guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. But Peter was sleeping. He knew what just happened to James. Probably did this more than once or twice while he was in prison for that week. And he he knew that Herod had it about him and, and wouldn't hesitate to kill him too. How in the world can he be sleeping at a time like that, when he knows that tomorrow, he knows that the Passover is, is about ready to end, the feast, the, the week of the feast is done, and tomorrow is his day. Most likely, he's going to be murdered tomorrow. Peter was sleeping. How can he have that peace about him? We know that. The church was praying, as it mentioned in verse 5, and that it was fervent prayer. It was very intense. They were insistent. The the word fervent has the idea that they were persistent. But they were also about it day and night. 
It wasn't something that they were giving up on because their brother James had just been murdered. They saw that. Until God saved Peter or or Herod took his life, whatever was going to happen, they were going to pray. And they weren't going to let it rest. One of the expositors says, the real, the real battlefield where the decisive events of time are decided for the followers of the Lord, the major battlefield is the prayer ground. The prayer ground. It is so important and imperative. Back to Psalm 34. Read that this week. But there's Peter. Hmm. Sound asleep. Read a read a short uh, excerpt from uh, a book by uh, George Sweeting on Acts. During World War II, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker and Sergeant Johnny Bartek drifted in a rubber raft for many days after having been shot down. Johnny Bartek wrote, We realized that there is no condition, that we were in no condition to expect help from God. We spent many hours of each day confessing our sins to one another and to God. Then we prayed, and God answered. It was real. We needed water. We prayed for water. We got water. All the water we needed. Then we asked for fish, and we got fish. We got meat when we prayed. Seagulls don't go around sitting on people's heads waiting to be caught. On that 11th day when those planes flew by, we all cried like babies. It was then that I prayed again to God and said, If you'll send that one plane back for us, I promise I'll believe in you and tell everyone else. That plane came back and the others flew on. Some would say, it just happened. It did not. God sent that plane back. Prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. So you go forward in verse 7. Behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a light shone in the cell... And he struck Peter's side and roused him, saying, I mean, the guy wasn't just dozing, okay? The angel had to smack him in the side to wake him up. Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real but maybe he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the, the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. I don't know if that angel had the remote or what, but the gate opened all by itself. They went out and they were, went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter came to himself, kind of you know, slapped himself a little bit and had to wake up and realize, no, this wasn't a vision. This was real. Peter said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. 
Puritan preacher Thomas Watson said, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. Pretty good, huh? Yeah. Prayer fetched that angel to come and get Peter. Stories told in World War II in the German POW camps that the, the Allies would smuggle in games of Monopoly. And be in the board, they would hide maps for safe escape routes. And in the bundles of Monopoly money, they would include real money. They would help them to escape and to, to purchase things and food as they needed to, to escape. It's pretty cool what, what our troops can imagine and do to, to help prisoners escape. God didn't need any Monopoly game. He sent his angel. They just walked right out. Well, it must have driven Herod mad when he heard about it. He said, man, what, what can we do, man? This guy keeps walking out of my prisons. But it was the result of prayer. It wasn't any trickery. It wasn't any secret maps or money hidden in anything that somebody brought into Peter while he was in prison. It was God. And Peter acknowledges that again in verse 11. Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me. The great escape. Just love the, love the visual of that. I mean, to, to us today, it's no big deal. But, but think about living back then. As you come up to a gate, it just opens. As far as I know, they, you know, they weren't on the power grid yet. Just open. God opened it. Made the way. Verse 12, when Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. They're still praying. It's at the end of the week. It's been a long week since James was murdered. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the front of the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. <laughs> Wait a minute. Really? No expectation that God's going to answer your prayer, that just maybe she could possibly be right, that Peter could actually really be standing outside the gate? Girl, you're nuts. You've lost it. You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. They, they feared that he had been murdered. And so they thought that, uh, little, little play on words there, they used the term angel in the translation, but it was, they, they, they were basically saying it's his spirit knocking on the door. He's been murdered, and it's just his spirit. It's not really him there. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. Now, it's interesting and curious about they. Well, let me read the next verse, too, because that, that's part of it. Verse 17, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, 
he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. Okay, he told them to quiet down. And it's interesting that the first time they sent the little slave girl out by herself. But they know that Herod killed James last week. I don't know if they had those little, those little circled glass things in the door so they could look out and see who was knocking at the gate. But maybe they thought it was some of Herod's guys coming to get some more Christians. They, they knew where Mary lived and this was her house. They knew where she lived. They were afraid. James is gone. And they're, they're waiting for Peter to, and they're thinking that's what's going to happen to Peter. And so a lot of times, a lot of the commentaries are, are, are harsh on, on the Christians that were gathered there, and I kind of get it, that, that they weren't really expecting God to answer their prayers. They, they were extremely fervent in the prayers. But when, when the slave girl comes in and says, God answered our prayers. Oh, you're out of your mind, girl. You're nuts. Couldn't possibly have happened. Well, then why are you praying? That's where I go back to Luke chapter 18, verse 6 at the end there. And Christ says, in the last days, I'm going to find that there's a lack of faith. And to, to some extent, that seems to be part of the problem here, but also understand that they're human, and they're wondering when their necks are going to be severed, when they may give up their lives for Christ. So they're cautious, okay? I, I get that. I can understand. I'd probably be cautious in those circumstances, too. But what are your expectations when you pray? What are your expectations when you pray? Oh, God will listen and I'll keep praying and, you know, maybe eventually something will work out. Maybe not, but that's okay because God's got it. You know, we can calm ourselves with that idea. Do we have expectations of God when we pray? We should. We need to pray in faith, believing that it will be done according to his will and that he is on the throne, that he is in charge. So Peter interrupts the prayer meeting. They come out and open the door and they saw him and and he's got to tell them to be quiet because it's the middle of the night and who knows if Herod's got some some spies in the bushes or around the corner. Again, they, they know that this is Mary's house. They know that this is where Christians gather. So this would be a great place to find more Christians to murder to keep the other people happy, right? But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison. Again, he's giving all the credit to the Lord. He knows that the Lord is the king of his life, the Lord of Lord and the king of kings, and the, the ruler, the one that, that, that has his best interest at mind. He said, report these to James and the brother. Now, this is James, the brother of Jesus. Obviously, he's not referring to the James that was beheaded the week before, the other apostle. He's talking about James, the brother of Jesus. Report these things to James and the brethren, and he departed and went to another place. It's kind of funny because they say even in the writings of Josephus and other church fathers, nobody has a clue where Peter went. <laughs> he just went to another place. 
If I had to guess, I would probably say it wasn't anywhere in Antioch. I, I don't know that, but, and nobody does except the Lord. But, but he went to another place. And, and God gave him many more years of ministry. We'll see him once more in the second half of the book, although we switched basically to Saul. In the second half of the book, he'll, I think chapter 15, where we'll see Peter one more time. But basically, this is, this is the end of the scriptural recording of his ministry. But he departed from that place. He went to another place. Again, how do you pray? Do you pray? We know that, that prayer is, is part of our relationship with God. We, we hear from him and his word and his Holy Spirit works in our heart and our lives. But our communication back to God is how he hears from us. We know that if we want to get to know somebody better, we spend time with them. We converse with them. We tell them about ourselves. We tell them things about us that we don't tell everybody. Good or bad, whatever. We just tell you know, that one person more than we just share with everybody. Maybe because everybody doesn't love you as much as that one person does, and they don't want to hear all of your stuff. <laughs> but God will listen. He'll never turn you away. That's part, that's, part, that's part of the communication. That's how we, how we develop and grow and cultivate a, a better, stronger relationship with God is to spend time in prayer. And then when we see God work, even if it's unexpectedly, we can know that it's God that's at work and we can give him the credit. Time in God's word, plus time in prayer, plus time in fellowship with other believers, equals spiritual growth in our lives. So where are you at? We, we, you say, oh, I'm praying for you. So-and-so is sick. Oh, I'm praying for you. Don't be flippant with that. If you're going to tell somebody you're praying for them, you better be praying for them. They need that. You need that. God wants to hear it from us. That we care about others more than ourselves. That we care enough about others to spend some of our time praying for them. I wasn't going to end with this one, but I will. Richard Newton says, The principal cause of my leanness and unfruitfulness is owing to an unaccountable backwardness to pray. I can write or read or converse or hear with a ready heart. But prayer is more spiritual and inward than any of these. And the more spiritual any duty is, the more my carnal heart is apt to stray from it. It takes work. It takes effort. As, as we're supposed to do with everything in our Christian lives, let's do it heartily as, and as unto the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for...
the example of Peter. We thank you for the example of the body of believers in Antioch that prayed fervently and didn't let it rest. They were having a prayer meeting around the clock to pray for Peter's safety and his release from prison. And Father, give us that kind of drive. Give us that kind of desire to love one another enough that we will spend time praying for one another, bringing each other before the throne of God. From our missionaries to our family members to our neighbors to one another, right here in the body of Christ. Thank you for the work of the Lord in Peter's life. Father, go with us through this week. Help us to keep our focus on you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.